0: That was amazing, thank you guys. Uh, let me welcome you also, if you're new here this morning, so glad you guys are here. Uh, we have a special guest, Galen's son, Jesse. <laughs> I told him he going to have to sing a special, but, it, but I'm just going to point him out and just tell him, hey, we're so glad you're here, we hear all about you. Galen says all the time that you are her favorite son, no, I'm just kidding, she didn't say that. <laughs> no, we're glad everybody's here, but thanks, Jesse. Jesse's in from California for the wedding to hang out with his mom, so we're glad he's here. Thank you. Uh, but I'm excited. We are, uh, we're about to finish a series we've been, uh, we've been going into for about a month now. David Woodham preached two of those messages in a row. Well done, Dave. That was ec- excellent. He did a great job on that. And so what we're going after, again, is that God is first in our lives. And so we, I talked, when I first came up here about a month or so ago, when I introduced the series, I talked about how uh, there's, there's this science of self-sufficiency that the, you know, the world is trying to push. You need to be self-sufficient. You can do it yourself. Um, You don't need any help from anybody, and there's tons of stuff out there. Just go uh, Google self-sufficiency and see what comes up. I mean, pathways to self-sufficiency, six ways to become more self-sufficient. One of them is what does it mean to be self-sufficient? So it'll teach you, I promise, how to not depend on God. That's what it's going after. And so again, I know they mean well, and I know people mean well when they do this, but so often we get into stuff and we, find, we go after some of these things that the world pushes at us, and it actually does more damage than it does good. So the question I asked then was, can we actually be self-sufficient? Can we operate? Can we live our life outside of the one who actually created us? Created us and made us. I shared uh, Psalms. There's so many different Psalms that says this, but Psalm 100 talks about that we are the sheep of His pasture. It is He who created us, He who made us, not we ourselves. Isn't it interesting that it's so specific that God would say that? It's like, I want to remind you. And then Deuteronomy 8 talks about this as well. I don't have these scriptures up there. There's just a million of them. But Deuteronomy 8 talks about when, the prom- when you came into the promised land and, and everything that the Lord promised you begins to happen and you begin to live this amazing, blessed, favor-filled life, right? He says, remember who did that for you? Remember that the breath you take, the, the abilities, the, the, you know, the talents, the gifts, who you, your personality, everything that you are that's good comes down from the Father of lights. right? That's what the Bible says. It says, remember when you have all this, that it was God who did this. Don't forget him. Because the tendency is when things are going well, what happens? We get distracted, we get involved in the creation so much so that we f- forget the Creator. And God's intention, from get-go, from Genesis, His intention was, "I want to be with you." And we talked about in that first message that the passion that God has is to be, um, uh, be among us. It says literally in Genesis 2, that He walked in the cool of the day with Adam and with Eve, that his heart and his passion was he created this couple, he created you and I so that he could be in relationship with us every single day. And part of the reason why he gave the law, we've talked about this many, many times here at DCF, the reason why he gave the law was to show you that you cannot possibly be self-sufficient. When the, when the law was given uh, in, in Deuteronomy, not in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, Moses stands up and he, and he declares the entire law to the people of God. And all of them in unison said, We will do everything, everything that's been written. And you think about the, er- the arrogance that it takes to say something like that. I think their hearts were in- intentional, but their hearts were so wrong because the whole point God was giving us the law for was to show us that we cannot do it in and of ourselves. We need Him. And the law was pointing us, the Bible says it's a a school teacher, a tutor, that shows us our need for a Savior. So can we be self-sufficient? The the other question is, even if we could, should we be sufficient? And of course the answer is no. Because self-sufficiency is just a code word for pride, which is the original sin, right, of the enemy, that I will set myself above God. I don't need God. As a matter of fact, I will become my own God. And so that's the danger of self-sufficiency. It's actually a fantasy because... It blinds us to God's provision and his presence. When we're self-sufficient, we don't lean in and say, God, I need your help. I need input from you. And we also don't give ourselves time just to be with him. And it's really, really important. So we talked, uh, again, started the series talking about that. We looked at John chapter 15, and I'm just going to quote a couple of scriptures from there. John uh, chapter 15, verses 5, and then skip down to 7 and 8. Jesus is speaking, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. If is a really, really big word. You have to be connected. He is the vine, we are the branches. When we flip that around and we say, I'm going to be the vine, right, and he can be the branch, we get ourselves into massive, massive trouble. He says, if you are connected, if you are connected on a regular basis, you will bear fruit. But when it's cut down, when it's cut off, at some point the source that you receive every good thing from begins to fall away from your life and you begin to die. The Bible says about sin, it says sin brings death, right? And even as a believer, sin won't, again, we've talked about this many, many times about whether God has truly saved you to the uttermost. And we know it's past tense and he's done that. But even as a believer, if you sin, if you, if you stray from the mark, the intention that God had for your life, if you walk away from that, what happens is death begins to happen in relationship, begins to happen to your fruitfulness. It just begins to come into every aspect of your life. It doesn't take away eternally, but it will de- destroy almost everything in your life. Fruitfulness can only come from the constant connection to Christ. And so the big idea of this series is that apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Nothing of significance. This is what it says another way in Matthew 16. It says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, whatever you pursue outside of God, he's, God, God is he's giving us a picture. He says, what does it profit you if you pursue this without pursuing me? It goes back in the pre- preceding verses are just as telling. This is what it says in Matthew. 16:24. it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. It doesn't mean that, you, that you're not any good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in light of me, you deny. it's as if you're denying yourself. And he goes on, he says, Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He is in the lead, obviously, in that statement. And then it goes on and it says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I did that. I've chased after all kinds of things. As a young man, I got involved in uh, martial arts and Eastern mysticism, transcendental meditation, just about everything you can think of. I saw some incredibly weird supernatural things when I was in, connected into the martial arts and Eastern mysticism. But everything that I pursued, was, it was dangerous. The supernatural outside of the source of the supernatural is a really, really dangerous place. Anytime you pursue wealth, you pursue relationships, you pursue anything in your life outside of the source of God's goodness, the source of his goodness into your life, you're gonna end up with the opposite of goodness. So it's a dangerous, dangerous place. Verse seven in in, uh, John 15 says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, listen to this, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Think about that for a second. If you remain, it's it's a big if again. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you. He's not, this is not a salvation scripture. It's a living in Christ scripture. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory. In other words, God can't wait to do this, to pour out his inheritance into our lives. He goes back to it, it says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And again, His words have to remain in you. There's an assumption in this scripture that you follow after Jesus and you get to know him. Now, why is that so important? We we, we hear the the parable that Jesus tells about the the two sons, right? The father, he comes out and he meets the son who's gone off and spent all of his inheritance. And he comes back and that, that first son comes back and his mindset is, I've ruined it. I've ruined the relationship with God. I've been terrible. I've been a terrible son. My behavior is horrible. And this is what he thought. I can no longer be a son. But when he came, remember the father comes out and meets him, and he says, my my son who is dead is alive again. He didn't say, my son who is wrong is right. (laughs) That's not what he said. Because as a matter of fact, his thinking at the time was completely wrong because he came with with a mindset that I will be my father's servant, not his son. And God got busy, and and if you haven't received this as a disciple in Christ, God will get busy explaining to you, you are not a servant. That's not how this works. You are a son. Servants and sons do things for two totally different reasons. So it's really important to understand the sonship that God has given you. His words remain in you. You begin to learn about his character, his nature, that he is good. That he is a good God. And the enemy constantly wants to come in and and say that he's not with circumstances, sickness, with fear, anxiety, everything that comes. But God says, I am good. And if you pour your faith into that, that God is good and he wants to bless me, that scripture I shared before, you're not double-minded and you believe it. Then all of a sudden, all of the Lord's favor begins to flow into your life and then it begins to flow out. It's a fascinating concept. Jesus said at one point about the enemy, he said, he has no place in me. And the original language is almost like a picture of no handles on Jesus. So when the devil comes to grab for you, there's nothing to grab. He can't grab fear, right? Can't grab anxiety. He can't use circumstances. There's literally, his hands slip off of you because there's nothing he can do because your, your faith is firmly rooted in the character and the nature of a good God. We see examples of this all throughout Scripture, Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. all Go all in. Put him first. Lean not on your own understanding. That's a big one because maybe you're smart, but you're not that smart. Ask your wife. She will tell you, right? He shall direct your path. All your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. It, you have to submit and come in line with him. Do not be wise in your own eyes for the Lord. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be healthier flesh flesh and strength to your bones. In other words, if you align with God, as you align with God, your expectation is that favor comes. Now your heart is full of joy and thankfulness, so you you never get arrogant about it. You never go, God, I deserve. That's not what you do, because you know you don't deserve it. That's what grace does. It teaches us, right? And so when we come to him, we say, Lord, I trust you and I believe in you. We create an open avenue of every inheritance that God meant for your life to be poured out into you and then through you, and that's what it's about. I read James 1, um, verse 5 before, so I'm not going to get into that, but again, the faith, it has to, you can't be double-minded. You have to lean in with everything that you have. Put away your understanding and, and make a choice to believe that God is good, not without evidence. Read, follow, right? Follow Jesus, understand what God said, look back on what he's done Look at the circumstances and and then look at what God's brought you through already. And it's an indication of what he's gonna do. So let me talk about the promise of putting God first because this is where I want to end this message and this series is talking about what God wants to do as you put him first in your life. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. He says, don't worry. Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. In other words, people who don't know God chased after the necessities of life. I need to be clothed, I need shelter, I need something, I need food. It says, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your heavenly Father knows your needs? Now think about this, the Bible says, before we loved him, he loved us." That's what brought us into love with him, right? Because he loved us first. And while you were still sinners, while you're right in the midst of every bit of your brokenness, not even thinking about God, that's when Jesus laid his life down. As a matter of fact, before, before you felt that, he laid his life down for you. He came to bat for you before you even knew he existed. It goes on, it says, but here's what you have to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We've heard that scripture a million times, and I promise most of us don't have a clue what it means his kingdom. Seek. If you're going to see God pour these things out into your life, it's not automatic. It's free. (laughs) It costs somebody else something, but it's free to you. But it's not automatic. It's not like, oh, I just acknowledge God once and then I get all of his goodies. That's what the son did in the story when he went away and lost everything and had to come back to God. So we have to be careful of that. But it says, seek first the kingdom of God. What is that? It's the king's domain. In other words, I want to be about my father's business in the same way that Jesus said that to his parents when they they went away and they came back and found him. And he said, did you not know? Like, in other words, how would you not know that this is where you'll find me, right? That your life is predictable. Why? Because you are where God is. You are where God, and that's going to be, I'm not saying stay out of the bars. You know why? Because you know where God is? God is with people. We had, a, we had a guy who was on staff of this church who led a Bible study in a bar with all his, his unsaved friends. For, for years, he did that. And, and, and people, if people found out about it, they're like, I don't know if that's the right thing. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. And he would always say to them, yeah, but once you do that, you go back in them. Right? So the whole picture is God wants to do something, but it has to be in line with his kingdom and his domain. And then he says this, his Righteousness. You have to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, not your own. So, there are two kinds of righteousness. Imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness that God gives us. It's righteousness that we receive from God. It's given to us when we trust in Jesus. He, there's a great exchange. He takes my sin and then he gives me his righteousness in its place. Imputed righteousness is not earned. It's given and it must be received. And I tell you this, you cannot receive imputed righteousness when you're prideful. You can't do it. It's impossible. You have to humble yourself because you recognize that whatever I have in my own self-righteousness, which is the other one, it's not enough and I need something greater. So here's the definition, the dictionary definition of the other kind of righteousness, which is self-righteousness. Confidence in one's own righteousness, especially when smugly moralistic and intolerant of the opinions and the behavior of others. Everybody hates that guy. Even if you're that guy, you hate yourself when you realize this. Jesus condemned this over and over again. Six times in Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for rigidly adhering to their legalistic traditions in order to make themselves look good and to put other people down. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 was specifically told to Jesus, to these people. This is what he said. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. If you are trusting in yourself, you are not seeking his kingdom or his righteousness. You can't. You can't do it. So let me wrap it up with this. That's really what it comes down to in this whole thing, putting God first, is you cannot serve God two masters. Jesus goes after this in Matthew 24. It's a very familiar passage. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Like he really pushes on the point, right? You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Isn't it interesting? The first thing he says is, you can't trust the Money. You can't trust what this life says it's going to give you. You can't even trust your own abilities because at some point they're going to fail. It's another reason why you have to be in community both with, with your Father in heaven and also with one another as brothers and sisters because we desperately need Him and we desperately need one another. Jesus puts meeting your needs in the context, in the context of making a choice about who you're going to put first. Let me read the rest of that. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life, and this is the important thing, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What he's saying is when you pursue those things that the world promises it says it's, it's, if you pursue a career or you pursue wealth, you're like, man, I finally get to the place where I don't have to worry about money you're gonna be worrying about more money <laughs> and you're gonna be worrying about somebody getting your money. It's, you watch people who win the lottery and all of a sudden they're, they're multi-millionaires and become miserable instantly. Why? They have no idea who their friends are, right? But when you trust in the Lord, you know because he's good, he's, he's, he's always faithful, even when we're not faithful, he's faithful. You have to make a decision and to not decide is a decision. This is really important. If you, your refusal to make a choice is actually you choosing you. So don't put it off. Don't say, well, I'll take care of that later on when, when we have kids. And then we'll, we'll, go to, we'll go to church as a family. We'll get connected with God as a family. No, you won't. The care of life, the Bible says, will grab hold of you. The circumstances of life will grab hold of you until that becomes the pattern that you find yourself in and you can't you can't get out of it. One commentary put it like this. When both masters call upon the man at the same time, wealth, money, or put whatever is out there that, chooses, that chases after you and God, that that man has to make a choice. He favors, serves, helps, and loves one. And while he's doing so, he is disfavoring, rejecting, and showing disrespect and hate for the other. Jesus made it very clear. You're going to choose somebody. Well, that's actually a 60s singer, but he said it first, right? you got to serve somebody. A man cannot serve two masters. So let me close with this. What happens if you do put God first? What happens if you lean into this and say, you know what? I think this is really what I need to do, and you're, you're gonna, I'm going to take a chance because maybe you're not 100% sure. And that's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That when you begin to put your faith out there, when you begin to put your trust in God, that's why Jesus didn't say just make a decision and be done with it. He said, follow me. Come with me. Look at me. See what I'm like. And David preached into this with Jesus talking about taking his yoke upon you. He said, "He says, follow me and see if it's true. Hang out with God's people. Mature God's people, not Not the babies, they're not helpful (laughs) sometimes. If you don't recognize that there are babies, I'm just saying. But hang out with God's mature sons and daughters. Watch brothers and sisters love one another. Watch when there's conflict and they work it out. Right? The Bible says they're going to know, the world is going to know that you love me because of your love for one another. And when you see that happen, you begin to say, I don't know what this is because that was my journey. I'm not sure what this is, but whatever that is, it's way better than anything I've ever, I've ever tasted or seen. And so I put my faith and trust in God, and the more I did, the more I could, and the more I would, the more his favor and his inheritance would fall right into my lap. I grew up really, really, really poor. I drive into my neighborhood, I live in a cul-de-sac, and I drive into my neighborhood, and it's a brick house. And if you've never lived in a trailer, you don't understand the significance of living in a brick house. I'm no longer afraid of tornadoes, right? (laughs) But the significance of knowing where I came from and that there was no possibility outside of God to bring me into not just having nice things, but having nice things without the nice things having me. Because that's a really, really big deal if you grew up poor. So often you come into things and you become so greedy. Poor people can be some of the most greedy people you've ever met in your life, right? But if you lean into this and you say, God, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to learn your nature. I'm going to get it. I'm going to really understand you, and then I'm going to learn to live a different way because at some point, you put your faith and your trust in him, and, and the Bible says that you are given a new heart, no longer a stony heart, no longer with a crust on the outside that God or people can get through, but now your heart is alive. It's, it's vulnerable in so many ways, which is why you trust God before you trust anybody else, right? Right? And you grow and you hang around with mature people and you help immature people grow up and stop doing immature, dumb things and giving Jesus a bad name. Amen? We've all done that. So what happens to the man who put, puts God's for, God first? First thing is this. All of the necessities of life come to you. Matthew 6.33, we read it. If you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, all these things will be given to you as well. Everything you have need of, He will give it to you. Do you need A car? Do you need a house? When we bought our house, one of the first things we said was, we want a house where we can gather people, God's people and people who don't know the Lord, into our home. And and we looked and we looked and we got such an amazing deal. When we went in and looked at the house and we said, this is the place we can see people of of God. We were were talking about this before, inviting people as, as we do this holiday mingle thing that's coming up. We've got, a, we've got a swing in the, back, in the backyard. It's in the cul-de-sac, so the backyard's huge. And there's literally a treehouse in the backyard. And we don't even have kids. We bought it from a retired family who built a treehouse for their grandkids. And so now when people come over, we have this amazing back porch where we sit and have coffee, but only in the wintertime because it's too hot in the summer. But everybody's kids can play and we can see them, but they're far enough away where they're not bothering you all the time and you can actually have a conversation with an adult right? (laughs) That's God's kindness because when we went to buy that house, we put in an offer and we had a limited amount of money we could spend. We found out later because when we went went and saw them, of course, Karen made friends with them because she makes friends with everything that makes eye contact with her. And then she prayed for them and we prayed for them. We're coming to look at their house and we prayed for them and prayed for their kids and they were crying and had an encounter with God because that's what we're about. We love it. And later on, we found out there were 10 offers on that house more than what we offered. And they said to the real estate, even though they could make more money, they said, we want this couple to have this house. That's the favor of God. You can't buy that, right? You can't, you can't earn it. It's something that God gives because you're about His business. He gives you what is necessary and what is needful for His business. Second thing is freedom from anxiety. This is huge. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your qu- requests to God. And listen to this. It says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You have a problem with worrying? You don't know Jesus. Not as well as you should. Because when you get to know him, what you find is when circumstances rear their ugly heads, it's just another giant that's going to fall before you, Right? Because you have to throw the rock, of course, but it's Jesus who guides it to the center of the forehead and lays him down. And then you go get his sword and you take his his head off. Obviously, I'm referring to the story of David and Goliath, right? But that's the picture of how God works in your life. Anxiety is a giant. Fear is a giant. It will will come after you. It will taunt you. It It will put you into a cave faster than anything else. And understanding who Jesus is, as you place this in and you watch him over your lifetime come through for you every single time, the anxiety and the fear falls away. And it, it pops up just like the giant. And you have to make a decision about who you're going to put first. The circumstances, your own fear, any of those things are you going to put God first. And when you do, fear falls every single time. Number three, joy and contentment comes to you. John 15, 11, I've told you this. So listen, so my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be be complete. You want real, lasting joy and contentment. The only way that comes is connecting to the one who made you, who can pour that out in you in spades. And then lastly, abundant and eternal life. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life, and not just life, but life more abundantly. When I first got saved and I was immature, I read this scripture and I thought that meant I get a lot of things because my lifestyle had shown me that things make me happy, only they don't. Every time I would get a thing, I would want another thing. And you know what? And I find it funny that, you know, Apple, I'm, I, I can't show you, but I'm back my iPad. The, the Apple logo has a bite out of it. I don't think that's a coincidence at all, right? <laughs> because this happens to me with iPhones. They come out with a new iPhone and I'm like, you know, my life would be so much better if I had that new iPhone because I watched that video and, and you know, John, was his name? Johnny, I he's not there anymore. But anyway, he would, with this beautiful English accent, would tell me how much more, better my life was gonna be if I had that new iPhone. And I get that new iPhone and my life's better for about 15 seconds <laughs> until, until I look back and go, how much did I pay for that new iPhone? Oh my God, right? But what happens with God is he fills me up. There's an abundant and eternal life that it begins to build, and I feel myself, and you have to hear this, when you feel yourself giving your life away for something that matters, it makes all the difference in the world. We do that on a regular basis. It makes all the difference in the world. When you pour your life out in service to others because God has done that on your behalf, there's something inside of you that becomes full. There's a joy. There's an abundant and eternal life that comes. And I just want to challenge you with this before I pray for us. You have to understand this. It's so easy to ascribe to the Lord what the devil's job description is. So listen to this again. He says the thief... This is why Jesus is saying this. Here's what the thief comes to do only. This is only what he does. He wants to steal from you your joy. He wants to steal faith from you. He wants to steal your inheritance. He wants to steal relationships. He wants to steal joy and contentment. He says he wants to kill, to kill and destroy And so often when circumstances arise that look just like that, stealing and killing and destroying, the first thing we do is we attribute and ascribe that to God rather than to the enemy. And I want to tell you, you have to make a conscious decision. Again, it's not accidental. You have to make a conscious decision. I will ascribe to the Lord what he is worthy of, praise and honor I want to to say of him who he is, his character and his nature. He is good. He is faithful even when I am faithless. He loves me even when I'm unlovable. Even in my worst moments, he never withdraws from me. He said, I'll never leave you. I I won't leave you as an orphan. I will come to you regardless, regardless of your behavior. That kind of love is unconditional. And you can't have that without the one who gives that kind of love. Abundant eternal life. So I want to challenge you to put God first in your understanding. Get to know him. Put him first in your pursuits. Chase him down. And it may take time. You maybe have to start coming to church on a regular basis, hanging out with godly people on a regular basis, reading this amazing best-selling book that he put out, right, on a regular basis. And lastly, make make him first in your affections. I love my wife, and I loved 65 years. You guys are going to celebrate in, in just a little while. I, I thought I was going to impress everybody this morning when I got up and said in, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be 35 for us. Pfft, 35 years. This is nothing, is it? You guys know, right? And I, as much as I love her, I met her in the seventh grade. She came into history class, sat three chairs in front of me, and as soon as I saw her, I said, I want to get to know her socially. <laughs> I've loved her so long, I can't tell you, but I don't love her. As much as I love Jesus. Because every bit of love that I'm able to give her and that she can give me, it only comes from Him. And you have to lean in, make Him first in your affections. The cross was a love story with you at the center. In just a second, I'm gonna pray. But as I was as I was getting ready this morning, I felt like the Lord told me, and it's a bit risky, but I've been asking the Lord about words of knowledge and, and stepping out in faith and putting him first. Go figure, right? And so, um, I felt like there was going to be somebody here this morning. I'm, don't, don't worry, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm, that's not what I do. But I felt like somebody this morning that I'm going to share something here with you in a second, and it's going to be a linchpin for you the way it was for me. And, and, and you, the sense I got is you are analytical. You're, you like facts. You, you want evidence. Um, and God is, you know, the sky fairy and, you know, who lives in heaven or whatever. And so it's like you've heard what the world says about him. And I just want to share this. And when I do, you don't have to do anything, I just feel like it's going to be, it's for you, to and, and what I, my prayer is, it's going, to, it's going to lean you into following after Jesus in a new way, and making this pursuit real, and maybe putting God first in your life for the first time in your life. But if you would, maybe share that with me. If not today, send me a text or an email or something, I'd love to hear about it. But this is just um, what helped me in understanding the, who Jesus was. The question that I had was, was the Jesus of the Bible who he claimed he was? And so I came across this. It's it's a it's a, a study done by a mathematics and astronomy professor named Professor Peter W Stoner, and he figured out the statistical. Ability for the prophecies in, in, about Jesus being the Messiah to come true in real life, right? And so he, there were over 300 prophecies. I have them up here if you'd like. I can send this to you, or I can, send, you know, I can shoot it to you in an email. But there are over 300 prophecies of who Jesus said he was becoming the Messiah, prophecies about him that he had no control over before he was ever even born. 300 prophecies that point directly to him being the Messiah. And, and Professor Stoner figured out that if you just took eight of those Eight of those prophecies, statistically, for those eight prophecies to come true in one single man, the odds of that happening were the same as if you took one silver dollar and put it in Texas and then filled Texas up two feet deep with silver dollars. You blindfold a man, you send him into Texas anywhere he wants to go, he leans down and he picks up that coin and that's the coin that you marked. Those are the odds for eight prophecies coming true in Jesus. Now, if you add to that eight more prophecies, then you take all those silver dollars and you melt them into a ball and you put them in the center of the sun. That ball becomes, this is, this is 16 prophecies coming true. That ball now becomes so big that it, that it goes all the way out almost to Pluto. One single ball of, of silver dollars melted together for 16 prophecies to come true. Send that same man out, in a spacesuit <laughs> to get to pick up one of those coins, as it were, and for him to pick that coin up are 16 prophecies coming true. It's the same odds. I was gonna go into the other one, but I can't even explain it. The numbers are so big. And he has to reduce it for just double that, just you know, just 24 prophecies coming true. Now you have to use atoms because silver dollars are too big. And you take the atoms and you you line them up and you put them in the same way, and it fills The entire known universe. And we haven't even gotten close to 300 prophecies coming true in Jesus. When I read that, I said, you know what, Lord, I'm not not mistaken in putting my faith in you. Because it, science, follow the science, (laughs) proves, gives evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. I have no problem with science. I love science. We have doctors. We have lawyers. We have super analytical people in our church who will show you how much they love Jesus. Just let them pray for you. You'll find out real, real quick, right? Here's the thing. This morning, all I'm asking you is, if you've never done this, to just put God first. Just follow him. That's what he said. Will you follow me and see? And I'm not going to force you. God's not going to force you. That amazes me. But he invites you in. And so again, I just want to engage you this morning and say, would you do that? And if this was you, if that was helpful for you, would you lean into that and say, this might just be worth pursuing? Will you stand with me as a close? Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for such an amazing celebratory Sunday. Lord, thank you for the word, Lord, as as Karen was sharing about how she was helping to prepare the bride for the bridegroom, Lord, that that's what I've gotten to do this morning in preaching that as our worship team and all the teams that serve in our church, Lord, are are preparing the bride for that day, Lord, and we are encouraging the bride to be everything that she can be. So this morning, Lord, um, I pray, Lord, that people would recognize themselves as the bride and that, Lord, your eyes as you look upon us, Lord, they're so full of love, Lord, and compassion and just you're driven, Lord, by your love for us to so many places you pour this out in truth and scripture. Lord, would our hearts open this morning to see just how big you are, just how great your love is, just how kind and good you are. And so, Lord, we want to put you first in everything in our life. Lord, give us practical things this morning about how to change our habits and pour ourselves into reading and prayer and just time with you in worship, gathering together with the people of God the way you called us to do, Lord, that we would, that we would lean our affections again back to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We love you guys so much. If you need prayer, come up. We'd love to pray for you this morning. If you're online, you can go to our website and click on the button and we'll pray for you there. We love you guys. Have a wonderful week.